The class of 2001 was hailed with a storm of lighting of fury on their entrance and exit for West Point. Graduating 101 days before the tragedy of 9-11, the class of 2001 served as junior military officers during the initial phases of the war on terror and increasing positions of influence over the next 20 years. Bound together for four years in school and together in service to our nation and their communities, these are the stories of those graduates as we look through the grave. Through the Gray has a new sponsor, Whiskey Rustic Woodworking. Whiskey Rustic Woodworking is a veteran and first responder-owned company that specializes in handmade, one-of-a-kind American flags. I served with Andy, spending many long days and nights together in the dust and the heat during two tours in Iraq. Whiskey Rustic Woodworking flags are crafted with pride and dedication, honoring all that the American flag stands for. Every flag is hand-stained, hand-crafted, and all stars and insignia are etched for a rustic, one-of-a-kind look. Whether you're looking for a graduation or retirement gift for your favorite military or first responder or something meaningful for family or friends, Whiskey Rustic Woodworking is your answer. Check out Whiskey Rustic Woodworking on Squarespace, Etsy, Facebook, and Instagram to browse current flag designs and sizes. Mention this ad for 10% off your order and shipping is always free. Make a rustic American flag part of your gift giving this year. Welcome to Through the Great. We're speaking with Anastasia Piotrowski-McKay. How are you doing, Anastasia? I'm doing pretty well, thank you. So first question, why West Point? Why West Point? I wanted to go to West Point to become an engineer. I wanted to be an engineer for since I was a kid. And I had a friend a couple of years older and had they had college books and I was looking and West Point was a five-star engineering school and the price was right. So I said I was going to go there. I applied early action and was accepted very early on in my senior year. Now, did your family have a history of military service? Did you have friends, relatives that served in the military? Actually, no, I did not have family that was in the military. I'm in central Wisconsin. When I got accepted to West Point, my guidance counselors actually told me I was going to throw my life away and that I could get a full ride and go anywhere else. But I was dead set on going into West Point. My dad was a type one diabetic, never had the opportunity to serve. He was thrilled that he had people in his family like myself that wanted to serve. But he was a little concerned with me applying to West Point because he didn't want me to feel bad when I got rejected. When you were accepted, like, what was the preparation that you did to make sure that you were successful? Um, I did absolutely nothing. I didn't, I just, I was just myself. I didn't change anything. I didn't do anything special to, for my application. I didn't do anything special after I was accepted. I just continued doing my classes. Something that was interesting about me in high school I went to the largest high school in Wisconsin. It was a three-year high school. And so I had a zero hour where I started school before seven o'clock in the morning. And this was, I didn't drive. And so I would walk two miles to get to school in the morning to be there for the zero hour class. 
And I did that because I was in a cooperative program and I worked at an engineering firm in the afternoon. And so I would go to school, get all my classes done. I had a Spanish class at the university on the way to my job. And then I would go and I would work in an engineering firm. I still participated in the same sports I always had done, which was like cross country or track. I was introduced into powerlifting my senior year in high school after I was accepted. But it wasn't, it was just me being me going through high school, nothing special. When you showed up to West Point, was our day your first day? It was. They like. You know, I honestly don't remember a whole lot of it. I know my family took me there. And I remember walking down the bleachers. I'm short. I saw a whole lot of shoulders. I was the shortest person. I couldn't see a whole lot. I was always behind somebody. I saw back and I saw shoulders. When the squad was all lined up and being yelled at, I was all the way at the end. I didn't always hear things. I honestly don't remember much of it at all. What was that? Was that introduction and that first couple of days like for you? Did it? Um, did you ever waver on your choice? No, I, I guess it was just like, this is just one step at a time. Like, you just do things one step at a time. I'd never thought about, I never thought about quitting West Point. I didn't think much about, I didn't think much about one thing or the other. It was like probably just living in the moment, stepping up to whatever line, doing whatever you had to do. I do know that my, nobody... People back home wouldn't picture me of being a cadet. I guess I left out an important piece of history. My dad was a professional clown, um, and he dressed up, done singing telegrams, and clowned around. And I can't say I was the most disciplined type of person growing up. <laughs> More of the type of people that could get kicked out of church type of. <laughs> and so I guess it was just going through one step at a time. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what right should look like or what wrong shouldn't. I can't shine shoes or do any of that. But you know what? I'm just going to do my best at whatever I'm, whatever task I'm given and whatever I'm able to do. So be it. And I guess that was the mentality is just do the best that you can at whatever it is that you're asked to do and try to do better the next time if you didn't at first achieve the mark. What was your experience at Beast? Did, what, would, what did you really like? What did you really dislike? I honestly don't remember a lot of Beast. I don't have, if there's anything I remember is I got moved in run groups. And I don't know, there were four run groups. I don't remember what colors they all were. I didn't start in the slowest group. I started in the second slowest group and then got moved up to the second fastest group. And I remember moving up and that was weird. And then all of a sudden the pace picked up and just trying to stay up and not fall out. And again, being a short person, you're always in the back corner. And so you're always responding to what everyone else does in front of you. That accordion effect is a monster. And I would say in Beast, I couldn't qualify or zero worth a damn. And I think it's because I should have been wearing glasses and I wasn't. And I can shoot just fine if I have proper eye prote visual correction. But I did spend a long time on the qualification range, and most of it was just trying to zero. The end of Beast and Moon in the academic year, 
What was that like for you? You're like, oh, yay, we're going into engineering. I got to do what I, I wanted to do, go to West Point to do engineering. Um, so I don't know if it was when exactly it happened. I know we did a bunch of academic assessments and I didn't, that was all cool. And probably I'm, I'm one of those people that didn't mind taking all those tests. We had some briefing and I don't exactly recall when it occurred. But there was some briefing that was talking about medical school and how you could go to medical school at West Point. And they said, if you're interested, we need to change your schedule or something for the academic year. And I don't recall the specifics because I, I wasn't all set on being a doc or anything. But when yeah. I was a senior in high school, I took my first biology class. I had not taken biology prior to my senior year. And when I was a senior, we were dissecting fetal pigs and had some challenge to take the brain out attached to the brainstem. And I'm like, oh, challenge accepted, challenge accomplished. And I'm the type of academic geek and nerd that just likes to read. And I had read a book entitled Conversations with Neil's Brain, where they mapped out epileptic focuses in a person or the homunculus in a brain, trying to find an area that was contributing to epilepsy and do a brain surgery to remove the part that had an epileptic focus while preserving function. And I was just fascinated by it. I didn't want to be a doctor or anything, but I was fascinated by it. And so I spoke to somebody, I have no idea who, after that briefing. And I was like, you can be a doctor? The one thing I was told is that if you go to West Point, you're going to be an officer, right? <laughs> and I had I was interested in foreign language. And so the very little I knew about the military is that they had um, foreign area officers. But I, I didn't know much else. And they said, yes, if you want to be a doctor, I think it was that you took foreign language your freshman year. And this was all about keeping options open, right? Just yeah. keep options open. And my brother was a linguist. He had spent an older brother. He had spent time in Spain. I had done Spanish classes at, at the university. I'm like, this is sweet. I'll do foreign language my freshman year. I can do this and keep my options open. And I had seen pictures on the wall. I don't remember what building. <laughs> there was pictures on a wall somewhere with cadets dissecting a brain. And that was a human brain. And I'm like, I don't know what that is, but that's what I want to do. And that's how I chose my major which was engineering psychology. And so that's how I got into more of the academics or into the school year. So I was probably just really excited to be done with Beast and to get into academics. That's the stuff that is my juice, is being a nerd. So as, as you go into the academic year and you start diving deep into languages, but also starting to move towards the medical side, what other things grabbed your attention and grabbed your interest while you were at school? So I was actually involved. I was actually involved in a lot of activities. Early on, I was learning about club sports and there was just way too much to do it all. I know I wanted to learn to sail, but that didn't necessarily work. I wanted to check out rowing, but I was little. And so I didn't really want to be a coxswain if I were to row. I had started powerlifting my senior year in high school and I did really good at powerlifting. So I 
did powerlifting while I was at the academy. I was involved in the theater's arts guild and largely like we would work backstage at Eisenhower Theater. We'd meet stars. They fed you really well. And so when you were a plebe and you didn't get a whole lot to eat because you just didn't get much to eat, you could always go down to the theater and just get fed really well. So the theater's art skill, then you would travel downtown and do things. I was involved. I had a roommate that did rock climbing and I learned about like the rock climbing pyad. And so I went out, I think it was to Connecticut with people and never been more scared in my life. Yeah, I, but I did the rock climbing and that helped me get up over the shelf on the IOCT. I don't know, something crazy happened. I spent time doing academic stuff in the summer. I worked at uh, Fort Huachuca in the Army Research Lab, working with an Army Research Laboratory, uh, and then got to be interrogated. It, it was all kinds of cool stuff. I don't know how I got my CTLT, but I did CTLT with an air defense artillery unit in El Paso. And I actually deployed to Saudi Arabia on CTLT. I went ADVON and everything that could go wrong went wrong. A kid went AWOL the day of deployment. I tried to cut something off my ruck and cut my middle finger on my saluting hand and tried to cover that up. We were delayed in, in our flight. We lost airtime over Egypt. It took us three days to get to Saudi Arabia. And then I got to experience being a female and needing to wear the abaya and sit in the back seat and have to stand at the ladies' window in Riyadh and not be able to go inside restaurants and all of that. I had exposure to speech. I did a little bit with the speech team or speech. I actually was involved in quite a lot. And a lot of it, I don't know, I forget about a lot of different things. I don't always remember a lot of the people, but it was just keeping busy. Keeping busy with all those tasks, keeping busy with academics, were you able to build strong relationships with people? And or again, it just became like one thing after another thing? It was probably just one thing after another. I am really a very big introvert. And so I don't, I don't talk a whole lot with a lot of pe people. And so I would do individual things, but I really wasn't the type of person that would just hang out with others. I was really the cadet with however many activities I did. I love to just spend time in my room. And so I guess I would say that I am a diehard introvert that can people okay. How did all that experience in your academic endeavors influence your branch choice? So I would say my branch choice is probably a choice I made because I followed advice of other people and not because I did any big thought on what it is that I really wanted to do. So. I had always kept medicine open and in engineering psychology, you did a lot of research type things, human performance, human thought, attention spans, things like that. And I loved it. Engineering psychology, engineers design things, psychologists understand people. You get into human factors, engineering and engineering psychology. You help engineers design things so people can actually use them or use them most effect effectively getting more into like human systems interfacing. And all the senior leaders or whatnot were saying, hey, if you can be a doctor, go the medical school route, you should do that. That's what you should do, hands down. And I put medical down largely because why not? If I could, that's what I should do. I don't recall what was 
actually on my branch seat sheet other than medical school. I don't know if I had, I think I had military intelligence as my top choice because I was interested in the foreign area officer and travel and the intelligence was something that seemed to appeal to me. I don't know if I put medical service corps down or not, because a lot of people who are interested in medicine had put medical service corps. But at that time, too, I didn't necessarily think about second options. I only applied to West Point. It was the only school. Here I'm going all in on medical school. Like I didn't think about any other option. It was like, this is where you go. What was it like when you found out? Probably anticlimactic. It just, I will say in our class, I was probably the only non-chem life science major that went straight through med school. And I didn't really appreciate or understand what all the chem life science majors were doing because it was a competitive group. And so I was a little bit of an outsider and I wasn't necessarily part of that group. But there wasn't a reception for those that were going into the medical corps. There wasn't the same people there in terms of branch activities. And so I honestly don't know what most people did branch night. I don't know what I did. I probably just went back to the room and slept. I don't know. What was the process? Did you have to start looking for a, a school? Yeah. So our junior year, I know you had to take MCATs, which were the medical school entry test. And I know that MCATs were the day of the national powerlifting meet. And so I chose the MCATs over powerlifting. And that's ended my powerlifting. I chose the MCATs. I took the test. You have to apply. You pay, you pay application fees to every single school you want to apply for. Everywhere that you interview, you have to get on approved pass or leave or pay whatever your own way to do the interviews. And you can apply for like the health, the HPSP scholarship, which is going to a civilian school. Or you can apply to go through USIS, which is the military medical school. And again, I'd Still, as a cadet, I went to West Point without a whole lot of money. Whatever I had saved in that cadet account is pretty much what I had. And so I didn't apply to many places. And as the application process went through, I decided that I would want to go to the USIS because USIS is the military medical school in Bethesda, Maryland. And when you go to USIS, you're a second lieutenant. You're considered like an active duty second lieutenant, but with zero years for four years, you're getting paid a second lieutenant wage. So you don't have to worry about all the other stipend or whatever else. So I'm getting paid mm -hmm. as a second lieutenant to go to medical school. It had a little bit longer commitment, but I knew financially I wouldn't have to worry so much. And so I started actually pulling applications I already had forward in different locations because I just figured it would be easier to go the military route. And if I'm able to get through West Point for four years, what's the military medical school? Before we talk that route, what was graduation like for you? That was, it was significant. When those hats went up in the air, I was just not prepared for being overwhelmed by the emotion. It was just incredible. The other... The two most significant emotional events at West Point were the hat toss at graduation and then the very first touchdown we scored 
at the Army Navy game are plebeier. <laughs> and when we threw our hats up, like I was having flashbacks to the Army Navy game because I was not prepared for just how emotional that first touchdown was that Army scored to take the lead so early. But it was it was pretty it was far more emotional than I was preparing for. I mean, you'd been like basically messed out one foot in front of the other, just head down, making things happen. What made that moment so critical to you or so important? Was it the accomplishment and the difficulty? Was it? It was everybody. There? It, it certainly was not having family or anything else. I would say it was the other cadets and the classmates. It was just a moment of pure joy. Yeah. And everybody there was just so happy. It was just like so incredible. It wasn't like an individual experience. It was a group experience. Everybody, just how everybody was just so happy. The hugging, just people you didn't have close connections with were just suddenly just very close and you could appreciate and empathize. You, you might not know the specifics of everyone's journey, but you could just completely empathize that everybody had just accomplished something so grand and that you were connected. And that just was a really amazing feeling. What was the next couple of steps like? You, you come off this amazing high and you start moving down the path towards medical school. Well, okay, we didn't have a whole lot of time to do much thinking or reflecting. <laughs> I had like two weeks off, I think. I, had, I didn't have whatever, one month or two months. I think I had two weeks to drive down to San Antonio to do the cadet basic course. Or not the, what it was this? This was the AMED basic course. And it was designed strictly for physicians. And so I got to spend six weeks doing drill and ceremony and learning how to salute because they're taking people straight off the street that have absolutely no military experience. And literally we're marching and we're forming up and we're saluting. And I just remember one of these medical students, if you will, saluting with their left hand for and. For a long time, with all these brand new PFCs walking by, freaking out because they're like by a bunch of lieutenants and these lieutenants are just clueless. It, it really felt like six weeks was wasted. There was, it didn't seem like there was any reason to be there. We finished that and I don't recall exactly when the medical school started, whether it was August or September, but drove to be ready for that academic year. And it was just nose to the grindstone, but right back at it. How, how did that experience compare? Did you find me, other diversions, other activities, or was it just all books all the time? No, it wasn't all books all the time. First of all, I had control of my time, which was awesome. I had an apartment. I started out in an apartment. I had sublet an apartment from a guy that graduated from my company a year ahead of me and went to med school. And so I ended up he moved in with other folks and I got his apartment. So all of that worked. I didn't have to worry about finding a house. We had a rugby team with medical school. So I started playing rugby and then I got frustrated because everyone on the rugby team wanted to talk about medical school and I wanted to release outside of school. So I joined the Northern Virginia rugby team. And that was an experience because now I was with a really large team of people who were not military and who were not medical. And people weighing over 300 pounds, and I'm a little 120-pound person playing rugby with the big girls. But it was 
there were other things. Pandemics were really just two years, right? We only had two years of classroom, at least when how it was structured when I was there. And then you did rotations and you traveled from hospital to hospital. And at the military medical school, we traveled at military hospitals and clinics. It wasn't just Army. We went through all, whether it was Army, Navy, Air Force. And so it was just very busy going to different places, doing different types of medical rotations in different locations. And so it really was quite busy. And any time you went to another location, you could travel and explore. I had two really unique experiences in my medical school later on when I did clinicals. One unique experience, I did an exchange in Mexico on, and I spent one month at the military, at the Mexican military hospital in Mexico City doing a cardiothoracic surgery rotation. And then I spent four weeks at the Johnson Space Center doing more of a research NASA type of a rotation, doing it, thinking about medical problems for astronauts and how to keep the astronauts healthy. And I had the opportunity to do the Army Flight Surgeon course while in medical school. So there were lots of things that you could still do besides just school and academics. But I find that when I control my time, I'm a much better manager of my time than other people because I get so much back when I'm not hurrying up to wait. When you're going through that process of being exposed to, to NASA and heart surgery down in Mexico City, when did you start thinking about where you wanted to specialize and what did you want to focus on? So specialization, in some ways, specialization in medicine is similar to your time at West Point when you're trying to figure out what branch you're going. And early on in medical school, I learned about aerospace medicine. Aerospace medicine is taking care of normal people in abnormal environments. It's a little bit more research oriented and it fit well with what I was learning at West Point and what my interests and passions were. My desire was to go into aerospace medicine. Now, as you finish up medical school, there's a residency match process. There's actually two separate processes. There's one for military, which is the military medical match. And there's also a civilian, civilian match. Because I went to the Uniformed Services University, or USIS, I was guaranteed military residency and went through the military match for an aerospace residency slot. But when I had done the NASA rotation, I had learned on the civilian side that there was also a civilian residency program in aerospace medicine, which trained beyond just aerospace medicine and also had training in internal medicine. And I wanted to have an opportunity to do the civilian program, but because I went to USIS, I would need an exception to policy. I had applied all in for the aerospace residency program, which involved a transitional internship at Eisenhower Army Medical Center, which is in Fort Gordon, Georgia. And then the residency trains with the Navy in Pensacola, Florida. And I was accepted into the military match for that program, but subsequently was interviewing for the civilian side for this combined program in Galveston, Texas. And the NASA flight surgeons there said, you can go and do aerospace medicine, but if you're ever interested in working for us long term, don't do that. Do anything else, and you can always come and do aerospace later. 
And when I'm just looking at pathways and trying to get done with residency, I ended up switching to family medicine because it was the only way I could change a residency logically without needing to repeat an internship or to really stay on track. And I had tailored my transitional residency, at, my transitional internship at Fort Gordon with the goal to apply the next year going through the match process again because I was changing my mind for a family medicine residency spot. I competed well within the residency spot, but by competing well, it meant that I went with needs of the Army and not necessarily my preferences. I would have liked to have stayed at Fort Gordon because they have a family medicine residency program there, but I ended up going over to Tripler Army Medical Center in Hawaii, and I describe it as being sentenced to a tropical island far away. It was a pretty tough program where I became the fourth second year resident when normally there would be at least eight or nine residents per year group. And it's like for context, I couldn't start the program. I couldn't leave Fort Gordon until I completed the internship on June 30th, but the residency started on one July of the same year. So I literally signed out Fort Gordon on June 30th and conducted an overseas PCS move by myself as a single officer with a dog to Hawaii and then began my residency on 1 July. Now, was the difficulty of that transition the speed at which you made it or also the limited scope of what Tripler had as far as a student population? I think it was a couple things that made it challenging. One thing for internship, part of your internship is learning a hospital and learning how to function and work a hospital. And I had spent a lot of time at Fort Gordon, Georgia. I had spent most of my fourth year in medical school there. And it was a smaller hospital and a very close-knit group of people. And so you always talk about the people you're with. Tripler was challenging because it not only was the speed of move or transition, But now you're going to a large Army Medical Center with multiple residency training programs. Family medicine is somewhat viewed as like the redheaded stepchild off in the corner. And I didn't have the benefit of being there my internship year to learn how the hospital works or the hospital runs. And so now I was on an accelerated learning curve to learn all the intricacies of the hospital when you didn't have the benefit of being there your intern year. And then you add having very few people in your residency year means that you have more opportunities to be on call or more heavy lifting because of the small group of of colleagues you have within your year group. What were the biggest takeaways you had from that experience? There's a couple things. One thing that I realized in Hawaii is a lot of the faculty had trained in Hawaii and they were very partial to the program that they were teaching in. And they, they were almost blind to other ways of doing things. And when I would compare the camaraderie and the people between Eisenhower Medical Center and Tripler Army Medical Center, there was just a big difference. And so I knew things didn't have to be the way they were in Hawaii. Within the program, didn't necessarily have strong attachments with people in, your, in the program. 
And so I really needed to get an outlet or do something to take my mind off of the program. And I ended up doing things I never thought I would do. Um, I had volunteered for to cover the, the Honolulu Marathon. A friend ran it. And before you knew it, I signed up for the Maui Marathon and got the runner's guide to Hawaii and just started eating the elephant one run at a time. This is it's a big deal for me because back at the academy, I had power lifted and I got into running just twice a year. And I had run the Army 10 miler without any training in medical school one year. And then I couldn't walk for a week afterwards and swore I would never be so stupid as to do anything crazy like that again. But I've, to cope with some of the frustration I had, I began running on these weird trails and throughout the island of Oahu, and it brought a little bit of inner peace. And it was this process of training and building for this marathon that provided me a goal or something that was a little bit larger than myself <laughs> that took my mind off of work and helped me find inner peace. The other big thing I learned is just the importance of vacation. It's like that light at the end of the tunnel or something to look forward to when you're in the grind. It's just, it's nice to have something just to look forward to. And I had managed to get two weeks off on two separate rotations back to back and organized a backpacking trip to go to Australia. And like a good American, I was intent on seeing an entire country in two weeks because just going to get it done. But on the way in going on that trip, I ended up meeting my husband. And for me being incredibly type A, I met my husband incredibly type B, provided like this wonderful balance and it definitely helped me add other perspective outside of residency training. What was it about the goal setting and the running that really drew you? Was it the events or was it the fact that you were like in Hawaii? Like my experience in Colorado Springs was even if it wasn't tied to a specific event, running through the garden of the gods or running through the mountains and the hills of the Springs was absolutely beautiful and amazing. Was it the beauty in Hawaii that really kept you going forward or was it the, those short-term goals of those races? So I think it was really, I think it was both. I really enjoyed being out in nature. I really enjoyed the runs, but if I didn't set a big hairy goal, I'm not sure I would have got myself out of the house to work and go do those runs. For me, I want to succeed and I want to do the best. And I was determined that I did not want to feel like I did after running the Army 10 miler. And I was learning that if you trained appropriately, or if you learned just to enjoy running, that you could actually run these marathons and not be like immobile afterwards. <laughs> You did, but it required a certain degree of discipline. And had I not set a big hairy goal, I'm not sure I would have actually taken the time or effort to go out and explore. And I would have been perfectly content just hanging out and living at home and not going out anywhere. And the, the second question is, how do you go from a chance encounter with an Australian on an airplane to knowing that person would be a future spouse. 
so chance encounter. I would say, gosh, he sat next to me on the plane, and I was I was a pretty captive audience, and I think I was a little bit more loose than normal. I don't drink a whole lot, but I had a couple beers in the airport. I was just super excited to be going on vacation. And when you're a captive audience on a plane ride that's 10 or 12 hours, but it seems like it only lasts five minutes, it just increases your curiosity. And really, my husband, so he, and that's not something that I would normally do, but I got up to Cannes and I'm like, I'll give him a call. And he had borrowed a friend's vehicle, drove four or five hours up to Cannes, which he would describe as a short drive, booked himself on the hot air balloon ride that I had booked through my packages. And then when the hot air balloon ride ended up getting canceled for weather, which happens like less than 30 days out of the year, he took me on a guided tour of that part of Australia, taking me to waterfalls and his friend's dairy farm, and we ended up milking cows. And just after spending all that time, he still respected me as an individual and was completely not doing anything to take advantage of me in any way, shape, or form. And I knew that there was something special about him. And we ended up keeping in touch and it just, everything about it just felt 100% right. That's very cool. Talk to me about the return to Hawaii and preparing for the next transition. I ended up, I came back to Hawaii. My residency classmates joke about me having like bipolar, about being depressed and cynical prior to my trip to um, Australia and then coming back like a changed person. I kept on with residency, which was pretty demanding and maintain that long distance relationship. My husband at the time was flying Bush aircraft in Papua New Guinea. He ended up quitting his job in New Guinea and coming to Hawaii for 90 days on a visa. And that's when we ended up deciding to get married. So then I had all of those exciting things for weddings and whatnot to plan while finishing up residency. I had already done the flight surgeon course in medical school, so I knew I wanted to be a flight surgeon. I asked to go over to Fort Campbell. To me, there was just something nice about going to the 101st. I collected eagles, so I thought a screaming eagle would be great. And so everything was all on track. Finished up the residency and reported two weeks later to Fort Campbell. What was your experience with the 101st? I would say the experience, it was good. And bad. It was so uh, being a flight surgeon is exactly what I wanted to do. I was the first arrive to the unit because I had already done the flight surgeon course and I was with like the most amazing group of people. But I ended up getting rerouted from the original battalion. I was supposed to go to a battalion that was a little bit more problematic. I was assigned to a battalion where the PA outranked me and was providing some pretty problematic care that really I had some concerns with clinical competency. And the challenging part is as a physician, I was responsible for the clinical care he delivered, but because of rank-related issues, I was unable to actually provide the supervision or hold him accountable for what he did or didn't do. There wasn't a whole lot of time to dwell on any of that. The unit was fixing to deploy, and so it really became rolling up your sleeves and doing 
what I could do, which was taking the best damn care of the soldiers that I could possibly take care of, help people get ready for deployment, talk to the commands about folks that really had medical deficits that needed to be taken care of and give a realistic timeline of when they may be able to join downrange. At the same time, in engaging not just taking care of soldiers, really had to learn how to be the staff officer and work with the unit, learn MDMP and the planning process, and all kinds of military-related things that we just don't do in the AMED at well. When you're focused on becoming a doctor and learning patient care, some of the aspects of military decision-making, communicating, and helping advise commanders gets lost. So it was a good balance, but definitely, but definitely a challenge. The complexity of what you're asked to do in the preparation of soldiers to deploy, the maintenance of soldiers that are forward deployed, but also keeping an ear back to soldiers who are late deployers or early redeployers due to combat injuries, and then the medevac planning. Crazy, crazy large scope. It's, there's a lot of things, but it didn't necessarily seem like insurmountable or anything at one time. It was just taking things, a lot of it was taking things one day at a time. And so when I deployed to FOB Salerno, and so it's really a small area and you learn a little bit about where you would medevac patients to and what the skill, what the different skill sets and medical capabilities are within the area. So you take a large problem and you really make it smaller down towards that tactical level. I was at the unit long enough to learn the soldiers and what their medical issues and problems were prior to deployment. And once you really build relationships with the soldiers and understand what's going on and learn their problems, the follow-up becomes a lot easier. What our aviation brigade did was keep one provider back to help facilitate the rear detachment care. And so we'd reach back to the rear detachment provider just to touch base on any of the soldiers that we left behind to help follow up, guide their care, and help get them back into theater. And from my perspective, just taking care of soldiers and managing medevac, medevac operations itself, wasn't, it wasn't crazy complicated. It was just very busy. It took a lot of involvement and... The bigger challenge was that I didn't have a reliable PA to help and assist. And so I often felt like I was doing things somewhat alone. I would say an example was I was not allowed to be in the aid station when the PA was in the aid station. And so it would be alternating days where I would be doing clinical one day and staff work the next day. My PA really didn't do staff work, so I ended up doing all the staff work. When I was in the clinic, it wasn't too much of a problem with patient care because most of the soldiers that needed to get seen would come and see me. They just preferred coming, and so it was just, it was busy. And you talk about Groundhog Day doing the same thing over and over again. It was just, it was very busy, but it wasn't necessarily all that hard. I did start training for, I thought back to Hawaii and when I was training for the marathon and how rewarding the process of training was and how the training helped take your mind off of some of the 
residency stuff that I didn't enjoy as much. And I had a friend that was going to be doing the Disney marathon in January. And my deployment was supposed to come up into December. And I would have preferred doing the half marathon that was sold out. So I ended up signing up and training for the Disney marathon through the deployment. And that training process really helped give some focus outside of the daily grind. Were you a fob runner or were you running on a treadmill? I ran on a treadmill. I think we had, I think I did 90% of the running on a treadmill. We had about a two mile loop that we could run without body armor and whatnot. And it was just easier to run on the treadmill. And I also had to respond if there were any mass casualty events or anything happened where it was almost easier just to be on a treadmill where you could break away pretty easily if needed to get to a mass casualty type of event or a medevac. I know that was a struggle for a lot of people who deployed that question of how do I maintain that cardiovascular fitness? And again, it came down to, am I a fob runner? Am I an airfield runner? Or am I a treadmill runner? And I did most of it on the treadmill, but they'd also have AFN and they would show like all the football games without the commercial breaks. And for me, I don't listen to much music or or watch TV (laughs) typically when running, but I would just get captivated and forget that I'm running because I'm like catching up on the whole football game in expedited fashion. And I would keep on running until the game was over. That really is the best way. What were the big takeaways you got as you redeployed from Afghanistan? What did you take with you? I was very appreciative of my unit that wanted me to understand and learn MDMP and learn how to be a staff officer. I made many mistakes. I got my ass chewed several times. But at the same time, I learned a lot about the line officer mentality. I learned a lot about working in predominantly male areas like Apaches, boy clubs, and all of that stuff. And I really felt that I gained a lot of respect and relationships and really learned that when you roll up your sleeves and help out and work with the soldiers and take care of soldiers, the soldiers would really take care of you. We redeployed, and in redeploying, I knew I was going to be PCSing, and I was going to go over to Germany. I needed to get the captain's career course complete, and at the time, there was a two-week captain career course that was only for medical corps officers, and then the AMED captain career course was a nine-week course. And the unit I was going to was asking me to get released early from my unit to do the two-week course and get over to Germany as quickly as possible because they needed help with patient care. And I'm working with my new battalion commander and just interested in the military training and wanting to be like my peer officers and not just like a doc. And we spoke about the two week and the nine week course. And I wanted to go to the full AMED captain's career course. And the battalion commander said, yeah, I'm going to send you to the full course. We're not going to release you early. And um, it ended up being really awesome and how they took care of me. And so while many docs will complain about the full course, I ended up doing the full career course as a captain with the most amazing group of AMED officers in preparation to go over to Germany. And 
yeah, you take care of your soldiers, your unit, you do the training and people will take care of you. And the other big thing I learned is how NCOs stick together and how important and really how important NCOs are and the accomplishment of a mission and how to use NCOs. What was your experience in Germany like? So my experience in, in Germany is one that I would rather like to forget. When I went to Germany, I thought I was going to end up being a full-time doc. I ended up being a medical director for a clinic that had 50% staffing. I was really the only active duty provider between two locations within Germany. While we had difficult, while we didn't have a whole lot of staffing, I can say that there were multiple programs and initiatives started to help take care of soldiers, looking at behavioral health, mental health, pain management, you can name it. And every single program needed to have a champion. And in a small area, the only person that can really have all those additional duties is the active duty provider because they're not going to be paying or doing anything else for civilian folks. And so I was, a, I was probably like the lead or the champion for any single type of program that you could imagine. And one of the big initiatives when I was there was really to help improve treatment for people who were victims of sexual assault. The German system didn't do a good job, if you will, by American standards of respecting patient privacy treating victims as treating them with respect, allowing appropriate coverage, like in the German medical system, where people are much more open, or I should say German culture in general, not the medical system, there's much more openness to just nudity and being in public areas and, and not the same emphasis on chain of custody. And so we would have females with that would report sexual assault through an emergency room in Germany, be put in a hallway with inappropriate coverage, not really given them the privacy to process what had happened. And if evidence and whatnot was collected as part of a sexual assault, the chain of custody was poorly maintained, reducing the viability of evidence should a case go to courts martial. And so there was this great idea of having military medical providers be on call to do sexual assault forensic examinations where you were able to respond to multiple locations within an hour. And so I spent the vast majority of my time on Germany on top of the other duties also on call. And in some ways it was a little bit of a hardship. I don't want to undermine anything for any person or any victim, but it, it's difficult when you're on call 24-7 and unable to go to the guest house for a beer because it would impair the ability to collect any evidence. But fortunately, it was not something that was utilized frequently. It was incredibly rare that anyone would get called in. At the same time, it was frustrating because when we were called in, it was typically several days after an event where the quality of evidence we would collect would be unlikely to show anything that would be desired. I had a lot of things like that were big demands for time within Germany, um, difficult relationships still within the command. I was very much on guard most of the time and very much looking forward to leaving. 
I was incredibly fortunate to get picked up for CGSC in residence. And so I had a clear path and I had a good exit strategy and I knew I would be able to get out of my assignment within just over two years instead of having a full three-year tour. What armed you to be able to handle that spectrum of responsibilities? From the medical to the interpersonal and the, really the intergovernmental and multinational parts? I think for me, in my experience, a lot of my navigating in Germany had to do with survival. I had a very I had a very toxic and very counterproductive commander that was really out to see me fail. And I had to build relationships with the few people in the clinic to help me in terms of navigating some of the complexities. And I just, I really had to focus on the mission. My health probably wasn't the greatest because I was overly consumed with kind of perfection because I knew that there was a target on my back. But things that helped me get through it is one, I knew I was going to CGSC. So I knew that I knew I had an exit strategy and that there would be a date that I would no longer be there. And as difficult as Europe was, I was still in Europe. And Europe is a beautiful and Europe is a beautiful continent. Germany is a wonderful country. And I had to be able to take leave occasionally. And so when I had a weekend off or leave, I made the most out of absolutely any opportunity. And we traveled, went on trips. We saw as much as we possibly could see just to get out when I wasn't actually on duty. What was the experience at CGSC like for you? CGSC was quite literally like the best year of my life. I'm a nerd, so going to school is going to school is what I love to do. My husband was a pilot. He was frustrated in Germany because he was really unable to work. To work in the U.S., he would need to convert his Australian pilot's license to American licensees. And so when I was in school, my husband was hanging out at the flight office and he was converting all of his licenses and had this great group of pilot friends that he hung out with. And so he was much happier. I was nerding out, which is what I like to do. I had a, early on when I was at CGSC, I had a difficult conversation with my senior raider from when I had left Germany, who, <laughs> who pretty much said I was like in the bottom 50% of any officers he's ever worked with, which was echoing what my commander, who didn't want me to have any future in the army. And I was really struggling with kind of identities in terms of being a physician versus being an officer and the dual loyalties. Are you a doctor first or are you a physician first? And and where do your allegiances lie? And I was struggling with that. And I ended up going through a scholars program and had the opportunity to explore the tensions of dual loyalties and apply political science type theories to my experiences and tensions as a military physician. And I ended up writing my thesis, military medicine is one profession, not two. And 
really thought that we needed to reframe how we looked at some of the dual professions, because when you approach a dual professional role, role as two professions, you create a false dichotomy that has you put one profession above the other, when in reality, for medicine, military medicine, it actually is quite complex. And a good military physician can take both their professional training as a physician and their understanding of the military to help develop mutually beneficial solutions for the military and soldiers. And that that time in academia really provided me new energy and new oomph moving forward. So what was your next position and location after Command General Staff College? So this was interesting. My next position, I got my orders the week I graduated from CGSC. I'd gotten caught up in some non-processes, but I ended up going to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and I was a civil affairs battalion surgeon. It was a last minute job because the person who was in that job got picked up for group and was on his way out. And I tell you, that was the most amazing and the most fun I've ever had in the military was being a civil affairs battalion surgeon. Absolutely the best job between patient care, training, and working with all the medics. No better job in the Army. Now, was that the culture? Was it the population of soldiers you were serving? What made it so great? I think it was everything. It was a small battalion. You really got to know everybody. I had more experience. I I would say I was overqualified. This is perhaps the only job I went to where I was probably overqualified for the job. I'd already been a battalion surgeon, so I knew how to be a battalion surgeon. The civil affairs medics, special forces medics, they can be a little bit arrogant and think they know more than they do. So having a little bit more experience is helpful in terms of having confidence and keeping them in check. We did a lot of training, and training is a lot of fun. And training provides opportunity for teaching and going to the field. I I just really enjoyed being with the unit, doing the exercises. Now, we worked hard, but at the same time, we played hard. And after being in AMED and being in units where you never have a day off, there's no such thing as a training holiday. Instead of having a training holiday, you have a training day. It's just a completely different concept. And I remember being at Bragg, and it's a beautiful afternoon. The weather is perfect. And in the AMED, you get so used to like going to time. You always have stuff to do, but you keep on working until you run out of time, and then you work some more. And I'm working with the vet. She's it's a nice day. Let's just go out. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Come again? <laughs> She's like, no, there's stuff to do. She's we work hard. We go in the field. We do these overnights. It's a nice day. Let's just all go out. And all of a sudden, it's, dude, you can have a life and have some breaks and balance within your day. And it's all going to level out. And that was a lot of fun. Like working just overall, things seemed very balanced and very reasonable. We had a lot of autonomy to do what we needed to do. Civil affairs was something new. I was with the 98th Civil Affairs Battalion, regionally aligned with South America. Spanish was my language. I got to refresh and speak some more Spanish. Never did I ever think the Army would pay me to speak Spanish, but I ended up getting paid to speak Spanish within Civil Affairs. Like I, I, it was just, 
it was just a great experience all around. It's when I was with the 98th that I ended up starting triathlon. I started on a whim. I didn't know how to swim and I didn't own a bike when I signed up to do a half Ironman. But in the civil affairs environment, I also had time, space, and access, whether it was to like a master swimming group to try to learn how to swim or Thor 3 for strength and conditioning or being around other people who have done triathlon to help bring me into the fold or teach me some basics. And the community was just the most incredible community that it was certainly the hardest assignment I ever had to leave. Talk me through that, that, that process of leaving civil affairs and where you went next. When I was at civil affairs, I had, I was actually trying to come up to like OTSG. I had done an iron majors conference. I was interested in getting a glimpse of what was going on at the strategic level the issue is like you're a major and there's not really positions or anything for docs at that particular time. I had worked out a job to be the deputy surgeon at USASOC and stay at Fort Bragg. And I was super excited. I would have been working with Colonel Kane. But shortly after I like thought I was locked in to go to USASOC, I got a call to come up to Human Resources Command and be the command surgeon at HRC. That was a difficult transition. It was a very easy move considering most of my moves had been overseas, but it was difficult because I was going up to HRC and I was going to be a geographical bachelorette. My husband had finally converted all of his licenses. He was flying. He was working for a regional airline and he was based out of Raleigh, North Carolina. And so he was going to stay to be close to Raleigh. And so I went up to, I went up to HRC. I honestly didn't know what to expect. I was a little bit nervous about the job. I was a major. The previous command surgeons had all been lieutenant colonels or colonels. And I honestly had no idea what the doctor or the surgeon, if you will, at HRC did. I am not a person that really likes to talk to GOs a whole lot. If a GO comes into a room. I'm the type of person to leave or go as far away as possible because I just want to do my job. And now I was at HRC working for a two-star through a chief of staff um, with exposure to multiple GOs. But the other thing I learned by being there is that it was an incredible team of people and civilians and nobody there was going to let you fail. Everybody cared about the soldiers, the people, and the mission. And Everybody there was going to help you learn and help you succeed. I learned that the GOs were just humans. They were just normal human beings. And they really allowed me to be fully empowered that when I saw a problem, they helped coach and work through the staffing process to actually solve the problem. And I feel like we really got a lot done and I could really see how small changes at an organization within HRC had army-wide effects with broad-ranging impacts that were meaningful and were going to improve conditions for people in some capacity. 
Um, and it was the most broadening experience and perhaps the best assignment I didn't ask for. It's amazing how the Army will take you from this tactical level up to strategic level and then back down to tactical level. And mm -hmm. that glimpse of the spectrum of responsibilities and the impacts across those different horizons of authority. The more you do it, the, the more it opens your eyes on how that web interconnects and, and influences itself. And I definitely got a lot more comfortable just speaking to people and speaking to people senior ranking. It just, you're in an environment where a major, you're pretty much, you're, people know that you're green. And I think it also worked to my advantage in that since people didn't expect me to know a whole lot, they took me under their wing um, and really helped teach me the ways. And so I think I was the bigger benefactor by, you know, being a little bit greener and naiver. Now, your next duty station, did your experience with civil affairs and your experience at HRC arm you to have the confidence for that next job? I would say my experience helped prep. So I left HRC. They, they joke that when you're at HRC, you will get your pick of your next assignment and that you will get to choose whatever it is you want to do. And I was big headed. I loved operational stuff. I wanted to go back to Fort Bragg because that's where my husband was. And I spoke to my branch manager. I'm like, I want to be the 82nd division surgeon. And my branch chief at HRC is like, come on, you want to be a division surgeon. So being 82nd division surgeon, no, that's really competitive. Let's just reframe. What other locations do you want to go to? None really. I'd like to go to Fort Bragg but you put in your list for division surgeon. And when I got picked up for the 82nd division surgeon, I was super excited. I won't say I necessarily had the confidence right away. I was a little bit at awe because I wasn't, after conversations with the branch manager, I didn't think it would be possible to go. And I was a little bit nervous, not really sure how gender relationships would be with the 82nd, not sure how integrated or what that would be like on a division staff. And I remember speaking to General Evans, just what advice do you have? Do you have any advice to go into this job? And General Evans said, just be you. If you do what you've done here over at the 82nd, you're going to be just fine. Don't change anything. Just be you. And that was really helpful. And having those words of wisdom and the permission just to be me and to not change anything, I think really helped. And again, um, getting to the 82nd, so much is about the team. It was the most incredible team of peers that I've ever worked with. I've never been in an organization with so many lieutenant colonels. And everybody just was so dedicated to the mission that it didn't matter how much change was happening or how much certain t tasks sucked or it seemed like things were forever changing. Everybody just came together, helped each other. And like the staff and the team was so incredible and people were very close. It was amazing. How did you handle that op tempo on a division staff, but also balance that with family and activities to keep yourself sane? So I started triathlon and it triathlon became a bit of triathlon for me 
as crazy as it sounds, was a bit balancing itself. Because triathlon gave me a place to be or something to do to keep me accountable that also it was complementary to the work I did, but it was also separate and distinct from the work I did. And every day we started PT in the morning. Never did I ever think as a medical corps officer I would be at a 630 formation every single morning to do PT. But I was there every single morning with the division staff. And it was one of the most, it was a good way to get that training done, which was focused on a goal or a mission outside and connected me to the triathlon teams outside of the organization. But it was also a time to bond or speak to folks, friends, peers within the unit. And that was really helpful and good. But when I left work and I went home, I did a really good job at keeping work at work and allowing home to be home. And I had an incredible command team with the 82nd and people weren't calling you all the time after hours. You got your work done and we managed to get it done during the day, even if it was a late day. But once, once I left the office, I was no longer really worried about work, barring a major emergency or something that I wasn't bothered with piddly things. My time with the 82nd was incredibly short as well. I had gotten picked up for 05 command. And so as hard and as busy as the 82nd was, I knew I was only there for nine or 10 months. And when you know it's a very short period of time, even similar to a deployment that has an end date on it, you have that light at the end of the tunnel that you become a little bit more invincible to get through the slog <laughs> because you know it's, you're going to do the best you can, but it's going to have an expiration date. It's not something that's indefinite. Talk me through the preparation for and execution of command. So preparation for command, we have various pre-command courses. I actually was using some of the pre-command courses like when I was showing up to division and I focused on the pre-command courses to help prepare me to be a division surgeon or use some of those philosophies within my time at division. And so in some ways, still being a division surgeon was perhaps helpful for command. I would Part of that preparation for command was really not just division surgeon time, but other command surgeon time, being with operational units and having some outstanding leadership from previous assignments to understand like the difference between good leadership and bad leadership and what you wanted to emulate or not. So command, I was going to command a troop battalion at Womack Army Medical Center, Fort Bragg, North Carolina, I guess now Fort Liberty. And there's nothing, I don't know if there's anything that can fully prepare you for that job, especially at that time. Army medicine was undergoing major transformation. The Defense Health Agency assumed control of the MTFs, and Womack Army Medical Center was the first military treatment facility or medical center to fall underneath the Defense Health Agency. The troop battalion command is responsible for all the soldiers 
and officers that are work that work at the hospital or are assigned at the hospital. In addition to that responsibility, medicine was further changing in that in the past we had a professional filler system or profis where medical professionals that were assigned to the hospital would have a unit they were identified in, in case of a deployment where they would deploy with. We had changed that, or the military medicine, the army, changed it to an EMTO-aligned personnel or MAP system. So instead of having the medical professionals assigned to the hospital, they now became assigned to a unit. And then their duty was supposed to be at the hospital. There was not a good system, if you will, in terms of like derivative UICs or tracking personnel or knowing who was going where. And so I came into a command during a time of great transition where I don't know what it was. I think it was between eight and 900 people, but dropped to about 600 some within the battalion with about 280, I, like, over 200 personnel switching from this professional filler system to a map system of which the vast majority of personnel ended up getting assigned to the 44th Med Brigade, which was co-located and we would lose accountability of who was where and who was supposed to work in what location because they were no longer part of my command, but they weren't necessarily performing their duty at the hospital as intended. Within this whole MAP process, I lost 70 Bravos. And so as a battalion commander, I was supposed to have four company commanders the authorizations, the requirements were listed for 70 Bravos, but the authorizations got transferred out of the unit along with the map process. And so I was only authorized one of my four commanders. And so I would have first sergeants and no commanders and really had a big staffing issue in terms of having support from, from company commanders as well in terms of executing the mission. So just taking command itself was a challenge because it was a very dynamic period of time. I had, I ended up getting two out of four commanders. So I had two company commanders, each kind of overseeing two companies working with a comp, full complement of first sergeants. The other thing that's really challenging about this particular type of TDA um, unit is that you don't have a full complement of staff. And so I was expecting as a battalion commander, you would have a little bit of a staff, like an S1 or an S3 or folks to help with training. We had a civilian military HR, human resources, but they were actually assigned to the hospital. So even though all the soldiers were underneath me, the military HR was accountable to the hospital, which fell underneath Defense Health Agency, which it really became a lot of relationships to get help from the mill HR folks to take care of the soldiers. Instead of having an S3 to help with training, there was a PMTS staff or PTMS, whatever it was called in the hospital setting. 
and they were for the hospital commander in terms of whatever training and initiatives that they had done. When I took command, my command sergeant major was acting as the hospital command sergeant major, so I had a first sergeant acting as a sergeant major to onboard me. I was really blessed to have an executive assistant that was supposed to assist, but they ended up getting put on telework and maternity leave, and so that really was non-existent as well. And so it was just a very dynamic period that would be difficult to prepare for in the best of circumstances, but you end up going in, taking command and doing the best you can, having a vision and really just trying to take care of soldiers. As we move towards the end of the interview, talk me through the road to uh, Ironman. I had, I had started doing, I had done my first half when I was back in civil affairs. And I'd done it on, on a whim. And after I had done the first race, I took off for a bit and didn't think, didn't think much about it until like the following summer when North Carolina was going to have a full Ironman. And so I figured I'd already started investing in Ironman. I might, or in triathlon. I mean, I had a wetsuit. Now I had a bike. I learned how to swim. So I signed up for the Ironman North Carolina. Um, Hurricane Matthew came through, truncated the course. Um, and so I didn't feel like I actually accomplished an Ironman. So when I was at Fort Knox, I ended up signing up for Louisville just because I wanted to accomplish the Ironman and show it could be done. I was training really well. Things were really coming together. I felt amazing, and I had met with my team, having never really done a full Ironman, the full 140.6 miles, and they were asking me how I thought I was in terms of being prepared, and I felt like awesome, and I said, I think I'm going to be good. They asked me what I thought I would run the marathon in, and I said, I think I can, I think I can run it in less than four hours. And they're just waiting for someone to explode because most of, a, most of the time you don't know how to fuel or train, especially if you've not done one. And I managed to accomplish the goal and complete the marathon in less than four hours and did pretty well at the end of the whole experience and realized that not only can I complete the Ironman, but I can actually be a little bit competitive. When I had done Santa Rosa that the following spring, and ended up first off the podium, which is like sixth place. And I had improved to 343 marathon at the end of an Ironman. And I was like, you know what, I can actually, if I keep training or doing well, I can qualify for Kona. And never did I ever think that it was somewhat shocking to think that I would do an Ironman. But once I started doing it and training it and and getting better and, and building confidence, Kona really became a goal. And I had, this goes back because COVID probably screwed everything up, but I ended up choosing the Super Frog race in 2019, which is a 70.3, just because a full 140.6 is very difficult or very time consuming to train for. And I chose Super Frog, which had military slots to qualify for Kona as a targeted race. And so I went in 2019 at Super Frog, managed to put together a great race and qualified for 
both the 70.3 World Championships as well as the Kona World Championships for 2020. Of course, only for those plans to get derailed due to COVID. And it took a little focus. It took a while to get back on a training path. And getting back in 2022, started having some injuries or difficult things to work through that there was a period where I was unsure if I'd ever actually make it to Kona. And so the goals changed and it wasn't just to like race Kona or to do well at Kona. It was really to get to the finish line or to get to the starting line, because if I could start, then I could work my way to finish. But the real goal became to actually get to the starting line. And that was a big deal on something that I never really thought would ever be possible. And I'm a true believer in that anything is possible, but it just, you got to keep with it. What was it like knocking out that goal? It was an opportunity to have fun. The way I would describe Kona is it's like a really big payday. It's a way to, the fact that you made it there and the fact that you made it to the starting line is just amazing in itself. That once you get there, the whole experience is just one to be enjoyed. There's no need to go fast. There's no need to go crazy. There's no need to have this perfect race. But it's just a chance to celebrate the fact that I am able to do this, able to do the triathlon on all three legs, and just marvel at the company that I am with, whether they're physically challenged athletes or completely able-bodied, that I am with a couple thousand other crazy people who are just like-minded, that are just trying to be a little bit better and do the impossible. And it's a really good experience. And especially as you get into the late hours, helping people get across the finish line who are battling whatever demons they're battling that day. And just, there's not many words to describe the experience, but it is certainly an experience to cherish. I don't have any desire to go back. I don't have any desire to, to re-qualify. I don't need anything more. It's just very satisfying to have had the opportunity to qualify, compete, and finish. For a moment, I thought you were talking about West Point and not Kona. I guess you could draw similarities. <laughs> Do you have any closing comments for the class? It's been a roller coaster. I'm a little bit jealous when I see everybody retire and see people moving on. I might be hitting folks up for advice because I went to medical school. I'm not quite eligible for retirement yet, but I'm really interested in seeing what else is out there because I've already done all the best jobs that a military doc can do. And if you ever want to talk about crazy stories or whatever else, we can have some beers and I got some good ones. Again, thank you so much for sharing Anastasia. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for bringing people together and allowing us to share. My pleasure. Till duty is done. 2001. Through the Gray has its first sponsor, Urban Industrial Northwest, 
Urban Industrial Northwest is owned and operated by my childhood friend, Greg Hostetter. Greg and I grew up playing in the woods and hit each other with sticks. I joined the military and Greg joined the trades. We both love the outdoors and the Pacific Northwest. Please visit his site and see the amazing work he and his team are creating. Urban Industrial Northwest is a furniture and fabrication company specializing in handcrafted products using heritage lumber deconstructed by architectural salvage companies from structures dating back to the late 1800s to early 1900s. Everything from their powder-coated hardware to their top-selling reclaimed wood desktops are carefully constructed by their team in-shop to create one-of-a-kind statement pieces for your home and office needs. Check them out on their Etsy store, Facebook, and Instagram, or give them a call at 360-703-6936. And mention this ad for a 20% military discount on your order. And to top it off, shipping is free straight to your door nationwide. Urban Industrial Northwest, giving wood a third life from tree to structure to an awesome piece of furniture. Thank you for listening to Through the Gray. If you like this episode, please share with your friends and follow the podcast. We want these stories to be shared with as many people as possible.